Item number one, I am reading a letter to you all. It was addressed to me, but to all, Tadalestai Church. Dear Pastor Knapp, this is from the Salvation Army, from Major L.V.D. Carter. This comes to say a big thank you to you, the associate pastors, staff, and members, for again supporting the work of the Salvation Army. It is a blessing to witness how your ministry is involved in service to the community and giving to help those who are struggling and in need of a helping hand. The prayers, the food, toys, and monetary donation will continue to help those in need in our community. Because of the generosity of many, this Christmas, we were able to provide gifts to over 300 families and individuals and over 500 children. On behalf of all who receive from your kindness, thank you again. We wish everyone a safe, healthy, and happy New Year. In his service, Major L.V. D. Carter, the Corps Commanding Officer. I thought you'd want to hear that and to see that the effect of your kindness, fruit of the Holy Spirit in you, is being felt in this community. And item two, our three insufficient ministers proved that their sufficiency is in God. And did so very well. I heard all the messages and was very impressed and quite, I almost want to say, proud of you. And thank you also for the fidelity that you've demonstrated as a congregation, the obedience to gather together, to assemble together. And item three, item four is going to be the most important. Item three, if you anxiously searched for me, I was doing my father's will, which was doing my father's will and my mother's. I didn't realize that I was blessed with the curse of executorship. And I I used this on my sisters. They were actually the team, and Pam and my sisters were the team that really put all these things together. There was more to it than I thought, but... I kept pulling rank and saying, you know, I am the executor. And uh, they laughed most of the time, too. I'd like you to turn to the fourth item in speaking of the will of my father and our father. To Romans also, but first of all, I actually left you with this, Jeremiah Really not done with this yet. 9.23 and 24. That's the LXX. The Greek translation is 9.22 to 23, which is always confusing, maddening, and exasperating for students of the word. And also, surprise verse is surprising to me, that which I consider the key verse of John's gospel. I know what you're thinking. It's not that. It's John eight twenty eight, And then also, we'll be in Romans, the back and the front. Our pincer movement is still on the way. Incidentally, thank you for your prayers. The priest at St. Joseph's, Father Lawton Lang, it's kind of a cool name, very young guy, was supremely generous. He said on the phone, he was amazed at my mom's departure and how it happened and how faith-filled it was. And he said, all I can say is, wow. And he said, it's really significant. And so he said, how about 10 minutes? (laughs) And that ruined my whole rhythm because I was ready for five. So I did seven. But your prayers were... I don't like to say the word felt, but they were indeed felt. The effect of them was felt. And the the Lord was very faithful to glorify his son in that mass and previous to the mass. And the priest was actually remarkably good in doing a eulogy. So your prayers were definitely heard and effective. Jeremiah 9, 23. But first of all, Romans... And my gratitude today was expressed in our prayer with the men in the waiting room that it's a great pleasure to entertain the presence of the Father and the Son as a, as a group, 
as a group of the small phalanx of an advancing army in the eschatological apocalyptic warfare in which we're engaged at this great challenge of the change of the ages, the going out of the old, the coming into the new. And it's my prayer that God will give you the bifocal lenses to see these two ages and to see them rightly divided and to see that you are new eschatological creatures in Christ. And so, first of all, Romans 1, the first two verses, then the last three verses. This expresses our pincer movement. We're approaching Romans from the left flank, Romans 1 through 4, from a right flank, 12 through 16 chapters. And then we're squeezing to the center, Romans 5 through 8, a double center, Romans 5 through 8 and Romans 9 through 11. And so Romans 1, from the far left flank, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, effectively summoned to be an apostle, set apart and limited to the task of preaching the gospel of God, which God promised, says verse 2, beforehand through his prophets, please notice that phrase, through his prophets in the holy writings. Now from the far right flank of Romans the epistle, Romans 16, 25. Now to him who has the power to strengthen you by my gospel and the proclamation, and that's the word keregma, kerygma. That's going to be a key word in the messages that are to follow, kerygma. And that's the Greek word is K-E-R-U-G-M-A, kerygma. We pronounce it kerygma because the English translation usually drops the U down into a Y. So we have kerygma, and that's the proclamation. And this is the only means that God has, not by miracles, not by testimonies, but by the kerygma, the proclamation. God confronts people and interrupts their lives and calls them outside of themselves for our salvation is a salvation from ourselves to be saved from annihilation or hell or whatever you want to call it is simply a metaphorical for the salvation of ourselves. If you want an experience of hell, get self-absorbed. If you want an experience of annihilation, live in self in an attempt to be good under the power of sin. We're saved from that. We're only saved from ourselves. We only understand the word of God with ourselves under sin put off and the new man put on, the new person put on. I have some things that are going to be so shocking that I do not yet wish to say them. And it's because of the shocking power of the gospel of God in his son. But I will be saying some things that will lead up to those things today. So notice in Romans 16, to him has the power to strengthen you by my gospel and the proclamation, the kerygma. That's the point of encounter with the living God is the kerygma, the proclamation of the word of the cross. That's where individuals contact and encounter God. And by that contact and encounter, their lives are profoundly interrupted. In fact, they are given a gift of faith, which for most people is unconscious at first. So what we're going to be teaching in Romans is not only that every person receives mercy, but that each person receives it in their own historical existential context in a confrontation with the living God. Sometimes that confrontation is so great that it remains unconscious. And so people that claim to be atheists or have turned away from the faith of, in fact, are anonymous saints. And we'll be teaching. That's a, that's a minor shock that's coming. But Romans 16, 25. Now to him that has the power to strengthen you by my gospel and the proclamation, the kerygma of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery. I'm trying to keep the punch in here by retaining the Greek sense. The apocalypse here, the revelation of a mystery 
kept silent for ages of time gone by. But verse 26, but now is being manifested through, notice this again, the writings of the prophets. And made known to all the nations by the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience that is faith. New twist on faith coming, a better twist. The debate about whether Pistis Christu refers to the object or the objective genitive, faith in Jesus Christ, or whether it refers to the subjective genitive, the faithfulness of Christ, is not soluble by choosing one or the other, but by rather transcending the both and realizing that it is a plenary genitive that involves both Jesus Christ's faithfulness and our gifted participation in that fidelity. So it goes beyond where we have been before in Better Call Paul, which serves as a dialectical introduction to Romans. That means I'm actually going to be arguing some of the points made in Better Call Paul, and that argument will result in a far more pointed unconditionality of God's sheer universal mercy. But as it is expressed in each and every case, God who saves all saves each. There's not only a radical universality in the gospel of God about his son, there is a radical individuality about salvation. And that's going to figure very prominently in our future teachings. Now manifested through the writings of the prophets and made known to all the nations by command of God to bring about the obedience that is faith to the only wise God, the only wise, let no man boast about his wisdom. The only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory for the ages to come. Amen. Now, There's a passage in the writings of the prophets to follow a line of continuity. There is a passage in the writings of the prophets mentioned both at the front and the back of Romans, the extreme left flank, the extreme right flank of Romans speaks of the writings of the prophets. This one writing from the prophets seems to have so profoundly impacted and influenced Paul, the writer of Romans, the epistle, that it practically distills what he's saying throughout the whole epistle or what the Lord is saying throughout Romans. I'm referring, of course, to the passage I ask you to turn to, Jeremiah 9, 22 and 23. In the Greek, the English, and you probably have your English Bibles, is the English is 9, 23 and 24. So I translated the Greek into English So it goes like this. This is what the Lord says. The wise person must not boast in his wisdom. The strong person must not boast in his strength. The rich person must not boast in his wealth. Instead, if someone boasts, let him boast that he or she understands and realizes that I am the Lord. Please note this next phrase, that I am the Lord who does mercy. He does mercy. It's what he does. And judgment, mercy first, judgment second, as an expression of his mercy, and righteousness On the earth, the word on the earth is epi in the Greek, and epi may also mean over the earth. Picture God surveying the earth, the the surveying horizon of God's redemption, the earth. And so he says, please notice again in the end of verse 23, and know that he understands I'll say it this way, that she understands and realizes that I am the Lord who does mercy and judgment and righteousness over the earth, on the earth, because these things constitute my will. 
These are the things God is excited about. These are the things that are his passion. These are the things that he is, says the Lord. Now, first of all, what I did not intend was to bring up something that I've started right all the way back here in our early days at the Alamo here. We're ready to celebrate its anniversary on February 14th. John's Gospel, what I began to see is a remarkable affinity or partnership or cooperation or synchronicity between John and Paul in their essential proclamation of Christ. So I called it the beloved and the aborted, John and Paul, for reasons that we've explained before. So the Spirit hearkened me back to John's Gospel. John eight twenty eight. Please notice this. When you Jesus is speaking now to those who are about to crucify him. That's what it means to be lifted up. When you shall have lifted up the Son of Man. This goes back to John three fourteen. No man has ascended into heaven but he that first descended. The Son of Man, who is lifted up like Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so that whoever looks was healed, so that whoever believes has eternal life. Now, that's John three fourteen and 15. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, beyond this in John 12 we have, if I am lifted up, I will draw all to myself. The prince of this world is thrown down. And if I am lifted up, the prince of this world is the announcement of the change of ages. What we need now is bifocal lenses to see the two ages. The one that's ending, the one that's been inaugurated, and who we are in the age that's oncoming and that has already arrived in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but more, more pointedly, even in his crucifixion. When you shall have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will come to know. Ginosko is the same word Jeremiah uses. Blessed. If you're going to boast, boast that you've come to know and understand that I am the Lord who does mercy over all the earth, who does judgment. How does God do judgment if it's after mercy. He does judgment by making the eschatological judgment that all of us have feared be realized in the cross of Christ. He does judgment by receiving the judgment of God abandonment in himself for us. There's a reason why God is more sensibly absent to us in this life than present to us. And what he wants us to know is that in our sense of his absence, he is more present than you would ever know. And I'll explain this. This is the life in our mortal bodies in which we experience God's absence. We don't see him face to face. We see him obscurely as in a glass darkly. We don't experience his presence a lot. We do sometimes. More times we don't. But by faith, the gift of God, we recognize that in this sensible absence of God, he is a very present help to save. And this is the paradox of God's presence, that he's more present in his absence but we have to experience his absence or his presence in absence in order to deeply appreciate his presence in his presence in the face-to-face -face presence of God, which we all hope for. The great pleasure that we have is not a pleasure at all. It's the experience in ever slight ways, very tiny ways, of our identification with Christ who on the cross cried out in real God abandonment. But God was present in his absence in Christ. 
on the cross. This is the presence of God in his absence. He is present in his absence. Paul echoed this very faintly when he said to the Corinthians, when you all gather together, and though I'm absent, I'm present with you in spirit. But look at this. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then, we could say then and only then, will you come to know that I am. This is the echo of Jeremiah 9.23. If you're going to boast, boast in that you know that I am the Lord. He's echoing Jeremiah. You know what he's doing? He leaves off there. He simply says, you may know that I am the name of Yahweh. I am. Ego, Amy. Hoti, ego, Amy. That I am. The same phrase used in Jeremiah in the Greek. Blessed because you may boast in that you know that I am the Lord, says Yahweh. Jesus is echoing Jeremiah 9.23 here. I can't emphasize that enough. You will know, come to know is the word here, means to be confronted and to come to unconscious knowledge and faith. Please notice that. It means to come to know and to come to unconscious knowledge and faith. Cognitive science has now discovered that 95% of our thinking and intending is unconscious. The question should be asked, then why can't faith be unconscious? And does it have to be relegated or restricted to a small core of people that call themselves Christians or believers or saints or the elect. God's embrasure of the human race is far greater than we imagined. When you shall have lifted up the Son of Man, then, we could say then and only then, will you come to know that I am Hoti Ego Amy. Same words used in the Greek translation of Jeremiah 29.24 or 9.23 rather. Where it says, Hoti ego aimi. And that I do nothing on my own. That means that Jesus acts solely and completely in concert with the Father who is the creator. And Father as creator is also mother because he speaks to his children as one who has begotten a son or born forth a son from his womb. He speaks to us as a mother speaks to her children, as well as a father who speaks to his sons and daughters. So we'll say here, I do nothing on my own. Jesus acts solely in concert with the father, the creator, which means that his being lifted up is totally in concert with what the Father is doing. But just as the Father has instructed me, he says, I say these things. What a goal for a preacher, to say only what the Father has instructed us. It's a goal. We never get there. But oh, how we should press on to. So again, I want to reiterate the English translation. I must be very careful here to lay this foundation. Instead, if someone boasts, let him boast in this, says Jeremiah 9, 23 in the English translation. That he knows, the word ginosko, same word used by Jesus. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know. Ginosko, G-I-N-O-S-K-O. And understands that I am hoti ego eimi. Same thing Jesus says you will know that I am a crucified prophet hanging on a tree as a curse is the great I am. And if you think you'll know him any other way, you're wrong. You don't know God by nature. You don't know God by viewing the creation as splendid as it can be. It is the old creation. And in Romans 1, we learn that viewing 
the creation and coming to a natural theology always relates to idolatry. God is only known in a crucified prophet hanging on a tree. And God confronts people as the crucified God. And that's a moment when unconsciously or consciously people come to faith. Then they may deny the faith. They may deny that it ever happened. They may not even know that it ever happened. But somewhere in their own personal history, in their own existential existence, to use the philosophical and theological fancy term, in their own existential historical place in time, they were saved from themselves. So if someone's going to boast, let him boast in this, that he knows and understands that I am the Lord who does mercy and judgment and righteousness on or over the earth. In other words, the righteousness that he does, the judgment that he does, the mercy that he does is over all the earth. It's the global initiative of God. Universal salvation is an elementary school part of the message of the gospel. We've been to elementary school so far on this. Let's move on. If God is comprehensible and you've got them all figured out, then your theological system is fixed, stayed. You have a bifurcation of humanity. There's the saved, there's the lost. If God is incomprehensible, knowable, but incomprehensible, then we're always on the move. We're always on the move, and our theology is a moving viewpoint. And so lots of people are offended by that because they want to have a staid, stagnant system. But the problem with a staid, stagnant system is you stop knowing God because he's only known on the move. He's only known in his action. He's not known in an essence square where lists of attributes are there, and you say, well, now we know him. And that always results in judgmentalism toward those that are without, outside. They may even judge those who are confused about their gender and say they could never be embraced by Christ, failing to recognize that God is confused about his gender. And we are made in the image of God. You say you're going to have to explain that. No, I don't have to do anything. We're made in the image of God. Yes, we are. Christ is the image of God. So then, these are the things that constitute my will, says the Lord God. What's the first thing on the list? Doing mercy. What do you do? I do mercy. What do you do? Well, I'm a carpenter. What do you do? Well, I'm a salesman. What do you do? Well, I'm an executive, a CEO. And that's a very prominent thing for me to say, you might say, because the woman says I'm a CEO. Then you say to God, what are you doing? He says, I do mercy. Where? Over all the earth. You see, my plan is to reconcile everything on heaven and earth in my son. That's what I do. I delight in it. Yeah, but it says you do judgment here. Yes, I do judgment because I receive judgment for you. And the eschatological day of judgment isn't some future day. It's the day in which Jesus Christ was judged in God abandonment by a self-donating love for you. You must confront this God. Those who call themselves Christians must confront this word of the cross. Or they're not Christians. 
They're not practicing Christians. They're not manifesting this life. They're not appreciative for this mercy. So they see humankind in a binary way with a wrong kind of bifocals. They see the saved and the lost. They see the sheep and the goats. They see all these bifurcations of humanity, the saved and the damned. And they have a fixed theological system. And many times it includes, and out of necessity, it must include their central tenet of faith, which is everlasting hell for at least half of human beings. That's the price you pay for having a fixed theological system rooted in the fact that you think you've got God all figured out. You can know him, and that's beautiful. And you can come to know him, that I may know him, says Paul, who saw him. He still says that I may know him. Because Paul recognized that God is incomprehensible. Knowing him, you can't entirely comprehend him. But those who think they've entirely comprehended God, limit God, they fix their theologies, they enter into the dispensational cult of the rapture coming tomorrow, which is a cult. Thank God we've been delivered out of it. One of my effects as a leader, one of my goals as a leader that I didn't even know about was to lead people up and out of the dispensational cult, which is the most exclusive self-righteous cult, talks all day long about grace and then tells you about everyone going to be stoned by 100-pound hailstones in a great tribulation. Such a restricting thing. I can only refer to it now as a coffin. And they look for a great escape for the elect few called the rapture. That's where I was. But God said it's time for you to lead people up and out of that vault of darkness. I didn't know that. I look back and see that that was his call. And we're still moving forward. And the more we move forward, the more people we've tempted to fall off and fall away because they don't want to keep on going. They, you know what they're doing? They're taking their hands to the plow and beginning to plow a furrow in the earth, but they're looking back. They're not fit for the kingdom of God in this life. Guess they'll have to wait. If our God is comprehensible, then our theological system is fixed, and we can write our little creedal statement and merrily carry on and hopefully draw people that believe like we do in our little creedal statement. Or we can have an incomprehensible God who inspires our worship and keeps us in a moving viewpoint all the time. We press on. That's where we are. I don't know about you. I'm going to, by the grace of God, keep on moving. Not because I have it in me to keep on moving, but because I've got a mover that keeps on moving me. And I pray that if I ever stop moving and get all willful about it, that he takes me out of this place. So Jesus is telling the very people who are about to crucify him that when they will have lifted him up, that is, when they have crucified him, then they'll know the I am. They'll know that he, the son of man, Jesus, the son of the carpenter, is the great I am. Why do they know that he is the I am that I am, the Yahweh, the Lord God, only in crucifixion? Because it is only there that God exercises mercy over all the earth. He is over all the earth. He is hung between the heaven and the earth as the one in whom God will reconcile the earth and the heaven. Then you're going to know. The thing is, When he was speaking, some people came to faith. But was the faith conscious? How could it be if the next thing they did was argue with him? And say, don't tell us we need to be free. We are free. We're Abraham's children. So how could their faith be conscious? If after they were awakened to it, they just fought with God. If you, read, if you read John 8.30, you'll see what I mean. Instead of finishing what Yahweh says through Jeremiah, what he does is he leaves the rest 
to be recited or recalled by his religious persecutors. They knew Jeremiah when he said that you may know that I am. Hoti ego Amy. They knew, well, that's Jeremiah. They knew either unconsciously, probably, or some knew consciously. He's saying that he is, and they are forced to finish Jeremiah 9.23 in their own thinking or unconscious thinking. I am he who exercises mercy, who does mercy, who does judgment, who does righteousness, which is execute salvific deliverance in all the earth, then you'll know. Was he lying to them? Or did they really come to know? And can you know unconsciously as well as consciously? Much of what we know unconsciously has yet to come to our conscious mind. That's what teaching does. It prompts it out. It pulls it out. It kicks it. It eggs it on. So instead of finishing what Yahweh says through Jeremiah, Jesus leaves the rest to be recited or recalled by them in their unconscious or conscious minds. So then Jesus says, the one who sent me is with me. He did not leave me alone. Wow. Now, there is where Jesus is referring to being lifted up. He's talking from the future of his being lifted up. He wants them to know that when he is lifted up and crucified, that God has not left him alone, even though he's saying, why have you left me alone? Or have you not read that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself? When was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself? Right when Christ was saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Here's the paradox. God was present in Christ while he was absent from him. His presence was manifested in absence. You are identifying with Christ in your life because I guarantee that in the past few weeks, months, and even years, you have experienced the absence of God. Which means you have experienced the presence of God in the sense of his absence. Which means you are identified with the crucified Christ in this life. Won't be that way when the glory is fully known. We hope. Well, in fact, you know what we do? We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Where his presence will be in his presence. But now, his presence is often in his absence. That's why he's with the suffering child whose ribs are showing through. That's why he's with the child with cancer. Who you see on those St. Jude commercials. And who can't give when you see those things. Who can't pray? Who can't cry? He's with them. He's with the marginalized in society. He's with those in prison, and you visited me. He's those that are naked, and you clothed me. So, we forget, because we have plenty. We don't have to say, give us this day our daily bread, because we got stuff in the fridge that will last us for the next week. So we might forget that that might last us for the next week, but that's God giving us our daily bread every single day. And so here, Jesus, when he says, the Father is with me, did not leave me alone, he's actually addressing that which they're thinking when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Was he really abandoned? Yes. But God, was God really still there, present in his absence? Yes. The triune God is our salvation. So when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That in that moment, God will not have abandoned him, even though he cries and dies for all of sinful mankind in God abandonment. This is the great paradox of the gospel. And you might even be confronted by it right now today as I'm preaching. 
the proclamation of the gospel. It isn't miracles and healings where God confronts mankind in this age, in this time, in this change of the ages. He confronts us in the word of his cross. He confronts us by presenting to us divinity in a crucified prophet. So God the Father, the creator, who never brought anything into existence without Jesus, was in Christ and with Christ when Jesus Christ cried out in God, abandoned desperation. This is the truth of God that confronted Christ's crucifiers right when they crucified him. It's at that moment, that very historical moment in their existential lives that they really live in this life, that they came to know consciously or unconsciously that the crucified one is the Lord who does mercy and judgment and righteousness upon all the earth. So it's more than interesting that this truth brought about faith in many of those to whom he was speaking. Look at verse 30. It always troubled me because I didn't understand unconscious faith like I do now. It is more than interesting that this truth brought about faith. And if someone says to you, that message was really interesting, then you know they didn't get it. They didn't confront the living God in a crucified man. They did not confront the apocalypse of God. They did not understand that God is not just a person, but the event of their own salvation. If you say that's interesting, then you're an interesting person, but you again didn't hear the gospel. So it's more than interesting that this truth brought about faith in many of those to whom he was speaking. Indeed, in John 8.30, John writes this. As he spoke these very words, many believed in him. Faith comes about by the message, and the message is the one about Christ. How much more the message spoken by Christ and how much more the message spoken by the Christ Spirit today, now, the kerygma. The kerygma is the place of confrontation with the living God and the creation of new eschatological creatures. A creation that happens unconsciously just as the original creation happened unconsciously to you. So a church is a place where faith comes to consciousness. And so we become conscious believers. Now, it's more than interesting that these same people began to argue vehemently with him and that he said that their father was the devil who didn't abide in the truth. In John eight forty four, you seek to kill me. Because your father is the devil, that means you are replicating his behavior, you're resembling the behavior of the adversary who from the beginning was a liar and did not abide in the truth and who was a man killer from the beginning of human history because he inspired Cain to kill Abel. Now, what does this mean? Shockingly, what this means beyond being merely interesting is... That this dialogue does not lead to a future Shoah, S-H-O-A-H is the Hebrew word for Holocaust. This passage has been called the Holocaust Dialogue, which means because the Jews were so vehemently against Jesus, that led to the Holocaust of, in Nazi Germany. That's not true at all. This dialogue led to their salvation. The word of the cross is that God rectifies the children of the devil. <laughs> this word of the cross, you know what the scandal of the cross is? God justifies Hitler and Judas just like he justifies you and me. That's a scandal. Because every time you talk about it, everybody being saved, what about Hitler? You know what? It's because your moral sensibility doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. Your sense of the need of reward and punishment isn't the gospel. It's all in the cross. The reward and the punishment came in the cross. God isn't moral. He's righteous. 
God isn't moral. He's merciful. God is moral because he's merciful. If you're not merciful, you're not moral, even though you say you're a moral person or part of a moral Christian morality. That's a group bias that you better be careful of because you might even be in it right now. The hard Christian right meeting with politics is no different from the beast and the whore. The liberal left and the communistic left and government joined in union. Nothing more, nothing less than the beast and the whore. Be careful that your patriotism isn't a group bias rooted in hostility and ressentiment toward other nations and peoples. Now, because they can't pin a preacher down, they'll eventually have to pin him to the wall because they don't know where he's really coming from. Is he an enemy of the state? No. Is he an enemy of the government? Of course not. But does he sound like that when he exemplifies the kingdom of God above all the nations? Maybe to some people. Because you see, to the impure, like the late-night talk hosts, everything is impure. To those who are defiled in their conscience, everything is impure. They can't see good in anything that anyone says. They can't see good in anything that a leader does so on the other side of things they can't see any good they only see evil because they are evil and their eyes are washed over with a defiling contaminant of their own self-righteous arrogance see i'm getting everybody here because there's a lot of people that talk about tolerance until it comes to their own ideology and then they're ideologically intolerant And they consider themselves culturally superior over these bumpkins over here that think this way. Or the bumpkins, sometimes Christian right people, judge other people because they say, certainly God does not embrace those marginalized evil people. When in fact he embraced them before he ever embraced you. And he has a problem with you more than he ever does. the tax collectors and the prostitutes who will enter the kingdom of heaven before you. See, now that I've slammed everybody, I've got nothing else to do except preach Christ, I guess. The word of the cross is that God rectifies the children of the devil children of wrath as Ephesians 2 3 says the very crucifiers of Jesus because God is the one who justifies the ungodly in Romans 5 6 and Jesus Christ is the one who died for the ungodly says Romans 5 6 it is God who justifies and Christ who died in Romans eight thirty three. so who's going to lay any charge to God's elect because God elects and justifies the ungodly, and Christ died for the ungodly. What do you got to say about the ungodly? For 1,900 years, more like 2,000, Christians have been binary in their view of humanity, and God isn't. He makes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. Why? Because he doesn't have the lenses that you have that divide humanity into the saved and the damned. He makes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. Why? Because your sense of good and evil is not God's sense of mercy on all. You see, we need a radical change of our perceptiveness, even if you're a person who thinks that you've undergone a radical change of perceptiveness. In fact, especially if you think you've already undergone the radical change of perceptiveness. I studied every day in my absence from you without exception, and every day without exception, I've looked like this in my study. It brought me back to the 46 years ago on January 23rd, 1972, when I was interrupted by an apocalyptic confrontation with God in Jesus and in the Christ spirit. And he was defining to me what happened and what he meant by saying, have a deep and abiding faith. What he meant by saying, I'll always be here. And it was hitting me. 
And then I studied, I looked up January 23rd, and I realized that in Wales they did a study, a scientific study, and they determined that no other day in the year except January 23rd is the saddest day of the year. In other words, it's the day when the most people are the most depressed in all of the year, January 23rd. And that's the day, January 23rd, 1972, that I had the confrontation with this apocalyptic proclamation of Jesus Christ and his universal saving significance. And I've been, he's been walking me up to that time ever since. Because I was introduced to the future in the saddest day of the year in 1972. And ever since then, I've been coming up to that future that I've already experienced. And it was happening in my absence from you. So it's good that I'm away sometimes. So I want to close with this, and I'm only one-third of the way through what I prepared. But I just want to say that David Congdon, whom I studied, in fact, finished the book finally. I finished the book on the day of the super blue blood moon eclipse, January 31st. The God who saves. He's on the bleeding edge of theology for the 21st century. He's taken a leap from Barth and Boltmann and Jungel and all the German scholars and all of the academicians that we have studied. He's a young scholar, but he's like Elihu and Job. He's speaking when all the old men should be shutting their mouths. He's the young Elihu. And I've never been challenged more than I was in reading a book than reading his. But I'll say this, and I want to close with this. David Congdon is precisely right when he says that the scandal of the cross is that God redeems Hitler and Judas just like he redeemed you and me. That's the scandal of the cross. And guess who's scandalized by it most? Men who preach the cross. Men who talk about Christocentricity, Christ-centered preaching. Men who preach Christ and him crucified are the most scandalized by the cross because it means the justification of the worst kind of people in history, as well as you, as well as you. That's a scandal. It's a, you say, are you scandalized here? You should be. It's offensive. It's the offense of the cross. And if we don't want to be persecuted, misinterpreted, misunderstood, scandalized even by our peers, then let's not go there. Let's avoid the offense of the cross because doing that, we avoid the persecution of our peers. I say all that big talk is doodly squat. Let's stick to the offense of the cross. Justice was done at the cross. You see, salvation is Jesus. God is the event of saving righteousness. You can only know him in his acts, not his attributes, his acts of love. Justice was done at the cross. So it's not a matter of your or my moral sensibility. Or of our need to see justice done. Or of our requirement of reward and punishment. As one person recently said, what's the difference between capitalism and socialism? One exploits men by men and the other exploits men by men. Because both systems can be distorted. And God doesn't support either one, despite what you may find in the Bible, that you think you may find. God supports an unconditional grace and an unconditional love, and an economy is only worth anything if it's based on unconditional grace and love and mercy. That's the economy of the coming age. So your requirement of reward and punishment in your mind isn't what the gospel is about. Justice was done at the cross. 
And that's where God executed his eschatological judgment. You better not expect to see anything different in the parousia than what was seen in the so-called first advent. The so-called parousia, second coming, is an event we know nothing about and have never imagined correctly yet. As is the afterlife. Will we know our loved ones? I don't know. Does an acorn recognize an oak tree? If someone you knew as an acorn is an oak tree, do you say, oh, that oak tree was that acorn? There's something far greater than we think. Just going like the Vikings think, I'm going to see mommy and daddy and grandpa and grandpa and all my ancestors, and that's it. It's life continues, only happy. That's not the afterlife. That's your dream of an afterlife. There's something far, far greater. It's about God being all in all, for starters. So then, I'm just challenging you. You know why? We got to keep moving. So the tip of this spear has got to egg you on. That's where God did his mercy. That's why you're going to know that I am, he said. You'll know Hoti Ega Emi when you've lifted up the Son of Man. Because that's where God did his mercy. And guess what? That's where God did his judgment. It's done. It's finished. Boasting. About boasting, Paul says, it is excluded. About boasting, you can say, it is excluded because Jesus said, it is finished. And because God from the throne said, it is done. It is done from God on the throne. It is finished from Christ on the cross is one, it is done. So what about human boasting? It is excluded, utterly and totally. So no wonder the psalmist said, I will sing about your righteousness and your righteousness alone. And I'll do it all day long. Psalm 71, 16. Psalm 71, 24. If you got nothing out of today's message, go read Psalm 71, 16. And then read Psalm 71, 24. And see a psalmist who knew God. See a psalmist who knew that only his righteousness, his act of salvation in Christ, is worth talking about. So Congdon has hit the heart of the X-ring. Because you see God lifted up on the cross in a crucified prophet. That's where he executed his righteousness over all the earth. And every eye will see him whom they have pierced. It isn't a matter of every eye seeing him, even those who pierced him. It's a matter of every eye seeing him, which means the eyes of everyone, for we all pierced him. And piercing him, we recognized he's the God who shows mercy. Because the best we did was pierce Yahweh in the flesh. The best we accomplished in this life was to drive nails through his flesh so that his love for us could be totally without condition. His grace would be sheer and pure. His love universal and individual and infinite. So Congdon hit the heart of the X-ring, and I'll close with his quotes. And he executed... Proper theology, when he wrote this, theology whose object is God can therefore have the logos, can only have therefore the logos to stauru, the word of the cross, that's its content. I'll say that again. Theology whose object is God can therefore only have the word of the cross as its content. And this young scholar who's on the bleeding edge of theology in the 21st century revealed to me that he knows and understands the Lord who does mercy when he concluded theology follows this God by journeying to its death. 
in the confident expectation that in this death there is life anew and for all. Thank you, Father, that we have been privileged to entertain your presence. And for some of us, that means we have been privileged to entertain your presence in absence in this paradox of Christian experience. And Father, I thank you for the mercy that you have shown to every person and the mercy that you show to each person. So each and every one of us can give thanks to you, can ascribe glory to you, the only wise God whose wisdom is totally saving. His wisdom is a saving wisdom. Thank you, Father.